everyone. Did you know Thomas Worthington never actually lived in Worthington or maybe even saw much of it? What became our city was named after Thomas Worthington, who originally was a surveyor and went on to become the sixth governor of the state of Ohio. He was a mover and a shaker back in the time of westward expansion in the early 1800s, but not a settler here. How do I know this? It's because I got to sit down with Kate Lalonde, the director of the Worthington Historical Society, and do something I've wanted to do since my kids went through the third grade at Worthington Estates Elementary School. I got to dig into the history of our fair city. As an aside, I'd just like to know that if you were a dude in colonial America, surveying seems to have been the ticket to a bright future. Thomas Worthington became a surveyor at the age of around 20 in Virginia and was paid in land. George Washington, he was a surveyor too, which helped him become a land speculator who eventually amassed 65,000 acres of land. Thomas Jefferson and his father Peter, wealthy surveyors. As you'll hear in this interview with Lalonde, Thomas Worthington helped the settlers of the Scioto Company select and purchase the land that our city now sits on, and that's how we got our name. Anyway, I mention all this because if you didn't grow up in Worthington, chances are you've never heard much about Thomas Worthington, the Scioto Company, or our founding story. I was always curious myself, but until recently, I knew no more about our history than what I could read on the signs surrounding the Village Green. Our kids who attend the Worthington schools get to hear in elementary school about our history, though, so I decided the rest of us should get to, too. Welcome to Worthington Stories, your local podcast about Worthington, our history, our future, our present, our visions. I'm Cynthia Bent Findlay, your host and producer. So let's go on a field trip to the Orange Johnson house, meet Kate Lalonde, and hear a little sliver about how we became Worthington. Okay, we're sitting with Kate, and we're sitting in the Orange Johnson House, which is one of the first buildings uh, here in Worthington. We're here to hear all about how Worthington got started, how this house got here, why we get to sit here and, and learn about it, and what else we can learn about our history in Worthington. Kate, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. My name's Kate Lalonde. I'm the director of the Worthington Historical Society. I've been with the organization since 2006. Since 2006? Yes. So I started out as a volunteer working in the archives, helping process collections, getting everything onto our museum management program, and then in 2013 was hired as the director. Oh, that's fun. So what what does the association do exactly? So we have three properties that we manage. We have the Orange Johnson House, which we're in today, which is an 1811-1819 house that portrays both pioneer lifestyle and early Worthington lifestyles, particularly of the Buttles family, since Aurora Buttles built the house, and then the Orange Johnson family who lived here for 50 years after he purchased the house. We have the old rectory, which is at the corner of Oxford, New England. It was built around 1845, originally located on the Village Green. And it's been moved twice. And Moved? <laughs> yes. So it was moved in 1924 from the Village Green to where the library is now. And then 1978, it was moved to where it is now. It serves as our offices, our collection storage and archive a library. We also have a gift shop and a doll museum on the first floor that are open to the public. The Worthington Historical Society grew out of the Worthington Women's Club, which is, as Lalone says, about to celebrate their 100th anniversary. 
Anyway, around 1955, the club wanted to start displaying some of its historical research and also wanted to draw in men and so split off into the Worthington Historical Society and became more active in collecting, displaying artifacts and researching. And not long after that, in the very early 1960s, two important older buildings in town, the Griswold Inn and the Johnson House, were in danger of being destroyed because of their condition and because of development. They were pretty old, they were pretty large, and they hadn't been taken care of for years. The society wasn't able to save the Griswold Inn, and there are still folks around town who mourn that. But they were able to raise enough funds to purchase the Johnson House and slowly start restoring it. Worthington looked very, very different back in the 60s. Worthington was really rural in the 60s. So there's houses spread out, more like what you picture, you know, to the north of us now in the country. Um, So it just would have been, you know, land. There was a lot of gardening here. um, Certainly some other houses to the north on High Street. And then when the historical... But pretty far to the north, not immediately out the window. Well, yeah, maybe something at the corner of Wilson and... um, Oh wow! High Street. I gotcha. Mean, they were. It was more spread out. Mm-hmm. I can't say that I know exactly what was going on in 1962. But hmm. um, so then, when Tollgate was developed, they were able to work with Tollgate to purchase this little parcel of land ah, in the house. Gotcha. And save it. And so that that was the historical society's first building purchase. Um, gotcha. Okay. And so did this historical society then move into here, I take it, and slowly start to renovate the house? Yeah, so the historical society got the house in 1963, and it took nine years to completely restore it. Um, There were a lot of structural issues, as I mentioned, and then a lot of the woodwork was damaged. So the good thing is that they were tearing that down the Griswold Inn at the same time this house was being restored. So they were able to salvage a lot of 1811 woodwork oh, wow. out of that building and incorporate it into the Orange Johnson house where things were missing. So certainly a great loss that, and I know a lot of older community members still remember the Griswold Inn and are really, you know, still saddened that it was torn down, but we've been able to use a lot of the building and be able to talk about the building through this restoration. So describe the room that we are sitting in. What room would this be? Sure. So we're sitting in the kitchen, and this was part of the original 1811 house. Mm -hmm. So there are um, two exterior doors in this room that would have been the original doors to the house. And the south-facing door that faces the Dairy Queen would have been the original front door for the house because Worthington, you know, in 1811, this was outside of the village, North Street, it was was the boundary of the village, wow. although they thought of the whole purchase of land as Worthington all the way up to High Banks Park. The, you know, village, town lots was north, south, evening and morning streets. So this was one of the first farm lots. So this was a farm lot. Yeah. And this was the first farm lot north of North Street. Gotcha. Okay. And so the door faces south and you'd come in and we have a large cooking fireplace. This is spectacular. Is this actually the original fireplace? It is. And as far as I'm told, one of a very few cooking fireplaces of this age in this area that's still intact and hasn't been modified. So it still has its beehive oven on the left side, which now people recognize 
because of the popularity of pizza ovens. Right. And then the large cooking fireplace, the large hearth, so you can um, use your hearth like we would use a stove today and set up your different cooking dishes and utensils closer or further from the fire, depending on what you're cooking. That would be hot cooking over (laughs) a pan on that large fire. (laughs) Right. It would be great in the winter um, because that would really be able to heat this house up. But in the summer, um, that probably is another reason why you have two doors and windows that you could really try to get some cross ventilation. Gotcha. It would be hot. (laughs) And the Buttles family built this. Right. So Aurora Buttles inherited this land from his father. His father came and brought the family to Worthington in 1804, so a year after Worthington was started. They were part of the original group that came here, but his family didn't get here till a year later. Aurora was 11, and then his father um, was also developing the Licking Granville Company. He was part of that company, and so he apparently was traveling in April and got caught in a snowstorm and then contracted pneumonia and died. Like nearly immediately after his family got here. So um, this property was in probate for a really long time, and then Aurora inherited it as he reached adulthood. So he built this part of the house we're sitting in right now when he was around 18 years old. Oh, my goodness. You mean he built it with his hands? Yeah, he he was a brick mason. He um, apprenticed with another brick mason in Worthington who built the Worthington Academy, and then he started, I think the other brick mason eventually passed away and Aurora Buttles became the main brick mason in Worthington. So, oh, wow. So he probably built this fireplace right by us with sure. his own hands. Sure. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah, and fired all the bricks. He went on to become quite an important figure in Worthington. He was a mason who built many of the buildings in early Worthington, quite a few of which are still around today, including the St. John's Episcopal Church, the now crooked and charming little snow house on West New England near the post office, the house that the High Road Gallery is in right across Stafford Street from the library, and the Masonic Lodge. Buttle sold this first house of his a few years after he built it. It was sold again a year or so later to Orange and Axa Johnson, another prominent early Worthington family. Johnson came to Worthington for opportunity like Buttles. He was famously a hornsmith who made many everyday items out of animal horns, like spoons, cups, combs, things like that, that weren't able to be made, obviously, of plastic yet. He came to join James Kilborn's Worthington Manufacturing Company, which was a fairly successful concern located down along the Olentangy River, where Fox Lane is now today. So James Kilborn was bringing people from the east to this Worthington Manufacturing Company to that could create create all sorts of goods that could be purchased here, but also sh- sent to Lake Erie and shipped east or sent down the Mississippi River to New Orleans and shipped out with all the natural resources that were available in Worthington in Ohio. Mm-hmm. He saw a great opportunity. So he attracted cabinet makers, tinsmiths, um, people. There was a mill, all sorts of people who and including perhaps Orange Johnson because he did have a site at the manufacturing site. Maybe that's a good segue to talk about how James Kilborn came here, organized this company, why he came here, and actually who he was, how Worthington got started in the first place. Sure. So James Kilborn organized a group of people in 1802 Mm -hmm. uh, in Massachusetts, Connecticut, that area 
to come purchase land in the West and settle a new community. Who was he? Who was James Kilborn that he would be doing this? So he was a leader in the East Coast, like very interested in religion. He became a deacon. He was looking to find a place where they were Episcopalian, and that was attached to the Anglican Church. And so there was a lot of persecution by people after the revolution for their connection, their perceived connection to the English church. So um, in part, looking for an opportunity to practice their religion more freely, but also Kilborn was always coming up with ideas like the manufacturing company. He was a surveyor. So he, when he came to Ohio, he surveyed not only Worthington, but Bucyrus, Kilborn, Sandusky, Lockbourn, a number of other oh, wow. um, cities or villages in Ohio. And out of all of those properties that he surveyed, he picked Worthington. Sure, because Worthington was the first where they arrived first. And so he stayed here and then Ah. from here would go out and survey other communities. Um, So in 1802, he organized 38 other proprietors, joined this subscription land company that would, that everyone paid in. And then they came, he actually came with another man, Nathaniel Little in 1802 to look for land met Mm -hmm. with Thomas Worthington, who at that point was a government land agent. Um, They had originally looked only at land around Chillicothe and put in a bid or a reservation to hold on some land down in that area. And then it's unclear exactly what happened, but perhaps got suggestion from Thomas Worthington to buy land further north here. Mm -hmm. So they bought 16,000 acres. 8,000 of those acres were the west half of Sharon Township. And that's what they called Worthington. Okay. And they were able to buy that land for $1.25 an acre. So it had already been decided Sharon Township existed. And was there anyone else in the area at all? There were some squatters on the land. And um, there were some you know, the land was still used for hunting by different Native Americans in the area, but there wasn't really, there wasn't any settlement here. So we do have to say, actually, that before this land was Worthington, before it was vacant and owned by the military, there were, in fact, inhabitants of the area, although none were in residence at the time the Scioto Company arrived. The Historical Society also currently actually is the caretaker of a Hopewell culture site called the Jeffers Mound. Its builders were part of a culture that stretched throughout much of eastern North America. And current thinking is that that culture lasted roughly from 1 AD to around 400 AD. The Jeffers Mound dates from sometime between 100 to 400 AD and was one of a large number of earthworks of some religious purpose constructed by the Hopewell all over the Midwest. But by the time the Scioto Company started moving west, people native to the area, including the Wyandotte and Delaware people, weren't residing here, though many did hunt and trade in the area, in fact, with Scioto Company settlers. The Americans native to this country, west of the Alleghenies, had of course been rubbing shoulders with explorers, traders, and settlers for a couple of hundred years by that time, and were being displaced bit by bit from lands they'd been on for many thousands of years. The Treaty of Greenville, signed in 1795, had pushed the boundary of what was considered Indian country, further north and west and out of the Franklin County area. It represented, of course, one more step 
in the Long March, removing Native people from their land throughout eastern North America. But since we're planning a more extensive episode on the people who made Worthington home before it was called Worthington, we'll save that story until we can give it the time that it deserves. So it was a U.S. military land. So after the Revolutionary War, the government said they would give Revolutionary War veterans land from the Northwest Territory as payment for their service. So this particular land had already, well, Ohio had already been divided up into townships, and then this particular land had already been sold to some other people, some investors that Scioto Company bought this land from. Oh, gotcha. So it was called the Scioto Company. And then uh, he was urged by Thomas Worthington, who worked for the government, and that's how the land ended up being called Worthington. The town ended up, was it always Worthington? They, when they organized this new group or this new village, the first, they sent an advance party out in the spring of 1803 to start bringing, building some crude log cabins and clearing land. And then the first families left the East Coast in September. The first people to get here got here in six weeks. They walked 700 miles in six weeks. They walked? um, Yeah, because they had wagons. But unlike kind of the vision we have, especially like, you know, from for me from elementary school or right. trail with like a big Conestoga wagon that everybody yeah. sat in, right? They had more just wagons. They were really big wagons, but they had to fit all of their items that they needed their whole entire lives into those wagons. And I would imagine there were no roads per se. Right. There or were not trails, um, and then the further west you got, the less those roads kind of became trails, became places you'd have to hack yourself through in the summer. Hmm. Um, but they, most of the people did walk next to their wagons because they were just too full to accommodate okay. passengers. One little girl, well, a woman wrote that she remembered when she was a little girl walking here that they got caught in a snowstorm in Pennsylvania and her tears were freezing to her face as Having she driven walked. through there in the winter, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. So they, you know, the first families got here in October and then the last groups got here in December and um, that was a long way of getting to. In December, they had, for Christmas, they did a series of toasts and one of the toasts that Kilbourne gave was honoring Thomas Worthington for whom they named their town for his help and kindness to them. So, so how many people came in that first trip? So by the time they arrived here, they ended up with a hundred people on the dot. And that is only because James Kilborn and his wife, Lucy Fitch Kilborn did have to stop in Pennsylvania so she could give birth to a daughter, Oral. So they got to pause for a few days before they got back on the move. (laughs) Um, But that apparently the legend is that that was very thrilling to Kilborn that his daughter was born before they arrived so that their group was 100 people by Christmas. Not terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the whole journey for our modern sensibilities just seems so overwhelming because nothing was waiting here for them when they got here besides some crude log cabins. So they spent the summer or the winter kind of like the pilgrims did when they (laughs) came. There was nothing. There was nothing luxurious about it. Um, In fact, Joel Buttles, Aurora Buttles' brother, 
who didn't get here until 1804, has a diary where he, as an older gentleman, just writes his recollections of that first first years here. And he describes it as a very sorry state with a hole in the the hole to let the smoke out in the roof also let the weather in and the floor dirt floors and just um it was it was the frontier it was rough wow and a new baby too yeah sure in, in the leader's hands mm-hmm. goodness so were there many children were there many families yeah it was um a lot of families there were 38 subscribers who we're in the Scioto Company, so that's 38 like heads of family. Almost all of them came. They were required to move here, or else if they didn't move and settle on their land, they would forfeit their subscription. So unlike other communities where people were buying land to speculate and as an investment, they did have to move here. But um, not all the 38 subscribers came the first year, so they were they did bring families. There were kids that came wow. with them. And they arrived to a few log cabins. Where did where would people have spent the winter under their wagon? Well, or? in those log cabins, there uh, were and then immediately start for... building mm-hmm. more substantial housing as well. Gotcha. They just you know they had young they had a group of young men. I want to say it was under a dozen that came out to start getting some crops in, clearing the land. Oh, gotcha. In the spring. Okay. And then as they arrived. They kept working. And so they would have been divvied up into the town lots already? So then they held an, a lottery in August of 1804. So an, almost a year after they started out. And then mm-hmm. from that, depending on how much money you paid in, determined the lottery order. And then they got to pick which lots they wanted and then the town lots then also came with these farm lots that were outside what we consider the historic district. Okay. And they were 20 to 100 acres, depending on the topography of the land. So you'd have a, a town lot so that you had somewhere to set up something commercial or to live yeah. and a farm lot. Yeah. Most, like the Buttles, for example, had... I think two or three town lots to start with and then this farm lot. And so they built a house first on the town lot and then didn't, nothing was on their farm lot until Aurora built this house we're sitting in, in 1811. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So did that group stay fairly consistent or did more folks come out to join them? Kilbourne continued to try to attract people from the Worthington Manufacturing Company to come. Uh, And some people continued to go west in the 1830s. A lot of people left and went to Iowa. Oh, but that was a little bit later. A little bit later. So, you know, that, that, but that urge to explore and do something new and move west, you know, similar to people that we know now who have that travel bug and have that urge to keep going for some people didn't stop in Worthington. They continued to move west until they found where they wanted to be. Gotcha. So the Worthington Manufacturing Company, then when did that exactly start? It was started around 1812, and they did supply a lot of things for the militia in the War of 1812. And it continued on until around 1819. There was a recession, and the manufacturing company financially wasn't solvent anymore and ended up closing. Gotcha. So, but farms and companies were not the 
only things that the group of settlers started. That is that right? I mean, it sounds like I think I remember hearing about schools being some of the first things built. Sure. And- yeah. So the Saddle Company knew before they left Connecticut and Massachusetts that they they knew what their town was going to look like. Mm-hmm. They knew they were going to have a village green that was five acres in the middle. And they set aside of the 164 town lots, they set aside two for the Episcopal Church and two for the school. So that advanced party that came out and started building houses in the summer also built a double log cabin that was used as a meeting space and for school. So they ah. started school classes in the winter of 1804. Like oh, they did? Right when they got here. Brought a teacher with them? Or, or hired one from in the general vicinity and then they yeah they got going right away with teaching and then they also knew they were going to have a library so they asked every subscriber in the soda company to contribute two dollars to bring books and just to put that in perspective an acre of land was a dollar 25 oh wow so it kind of tells two things they valued books but also kind of illustrates that in Ohio in 1803 there was just a wealth of land but not very many books <laughs> <laughs> so they so, had a library right away so they did bring books with them and they kept them in a box and it, they kept them at different people's houses and it was a subscription library as well so you had to pay in to be a member to have the privilege of checking out books but oh, wow they did you know they came to the frontier in Ohio, in the wilderness, knowing that they wanted to be able to educate their families and have culture mm-hmm. here and bringing texts was important for them. How long was the school building a wood log structure? So they started building the Worthington Academy in 1808. That's where Aurora Buttles apprenticed as a brick mason. So mm-hmm. about five years after they got here, they started building this academy building. And it was on the village green, the Northeast Village Green, where the schools had those lots that were set aside for schools. And Kilbourne Middle School is still on the back half of that lot. Oh, great. And then I would imagine it's always been a school over there. Yeah. So the the academy was, it's the Kilbourne building, which now houses, so to speak, in Cohatch. Mm-hmm. That was actually built as a library um, in the 1920s. That was the first time there wasn't a school right there. Okay. So for the first hundred some years, that was the school was right up on the green. Okay. The academy was there. And then eventually the academy was, that building became the Ohio Reform Medical College. It was in that building for a while. And then um, they built in 1875, they built a big two-story school building right there um, that was there for about 50 years. Okay. But didn't survive through the switch to electricity and plumbing and then was replaced by another, by Kilbourne Middle School in the, ah. thir- the 30s. And, the, and that was the main school building for all grades? The building that's Kilbourne was originally the middle and elementary school, I want to say. And then the high school was the McConnell Arts Center's building. Okay, but that in the 30s you mean that was built? Yeah, I think that was built actually in a little bit before I think the annex building was built in the teens. Okay. Um, So there was a lot, there were a lot of schools going up and down and Worthington started growing so fast after the automobile 
became, you know, once people could drive and they oh, could gotcha. work in Columbus and live in Worthington, mm-hmm. the expansion was so big that that the schools had rapid expansion at the same time that Worthington was, ex, you know, expanding because people could could work elsewhere and live in Worthington. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. But until that time, so from, you know, the time that that uh, hundred odd people, um, 40, almost 40 families came here, set up shop, set up farms, um, and started building schools and libraries and, and businesses. What, what, what did Worthington look like? What was going on here? So, oh, it's generally characterized as a sleepy rural town. Um, okay. From after, you know, from the mid 1800s um, until the streetcar came and then people started having cars and using it as a suburb, suburb of Columbus. Mm-hmm. Uh, the growth was not um, remarkable. Mm-hmm. They had an eight, I want to say in 1820, the census. Um, Records show there were about 200 people in Worthington, and um, by 1900, there were only 350 to 400 people. So it just really didn't grow. So when you picture, like, if you're driving in the country and the houses are sparse, you know, with a rural setting, there's not manicured lawns with landscaping. It was, they were farms. Okay. The houses were farms. The streets were dirt until around the turn of the century, it and wasn't a large trading center. No, I mean, the manufacturing company was here, and then it didn't survive. Um, there was a lot of education here with the medical college, but it left by 1840. The female seminary was built in 1839, and it was here for a time. And then when it closed, the Ohio Normal School, a school for teachers, uh, was in the down in that building by the Methodist church for a decade that actually gave the population a bump of about a hundred people for a while because there were Mm -hmm. the students made the census go over 400 for a bit of a time while it was open. But in general, the community was small. What else was around when they first, when the cider company first arrived in Ohio, Franklinton down south was here um, but everything else there weren't other established communities Mm -hmm. and then Dublin was established similar time frame Worthington actually made a bid to become the state capital they Uh, did yeah when was that so that was double check my dates around 1810 yeah so in 1810 Worthington pledged $24,000 from 136 subscribers plus land to build Capitol buildings in Worthington. So that was their attempt to bid, you know, to lure Mm -hmm. the Capitol here. And that's the kind of thoughts that James Kilborn and this group had is they got here, their community's growing and, you know, now it's time to grow again. Uh, And so Columbus, Dublin, and Worthington were the communities that were bidding to be the state capital but Columbus really there wasn't anything there Uh it was vacant land at Uh that point so Columbus won out obviously and although that was probably a big blow to the young community of Worthington um, certainly we wouldn't be sitting here today in this space (laughs) if this would have been become the state capital the landscape would look very very different I guess so (laughs) right maybe we're lucky 
<laughs> uh, yeah, I mean. So for several decades, uh, fortunes rose, fortunes sank with the recession. People went off to war. People came back. Um, people farmed here. What happened through the rest of the mid-1800s? I mean, a few notable things to mention in the mid-1800s. In 1835, an anti-slavery society was organized in Worthington. They had uh, 66 people subscribe to that. Were there were there families who owned slaves? Was there any slavery no, so at all? No, Ohio was a free state. Gotcha. And it's thought that the Scioto Company waited until Ohio became a state and that that was established before they, that they knew it was going to be a free state before they came. Mm-hmm. But there were certainly abolitionists and people working against slavery, even though, like, all through free states. So they established that in 1835. 66 people signed the document, which at first sounds pretty amazing, thinking about that the population was only around 200 people but it did include whole families like parents and their six children so it was kind of maybe a lesser segment of the population than maybe initially seems do we know if there were any actually if there were any african-americans living here sure yeah so in the census records we can see that I want to say 1820, there were about a dozen individuals Mm -hmm. in Sharon Township. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that's a little tricky in census records early on is that Sharon Township extended east. They only... Worthington was the west half of Sharon Township. Ah. So whether those people were in what we would consider Westerville and Blendon Town or closer to Blendon Township or Mm -hmm. if they were in the Worthington area is a little unclear, but there were about a dozen people out of the 200 um, around 1820 And then there were people that came, and that population continued to increase. Uh, You know, in 1855, a family called the Turk family purchased a house on um, New England Avenue. Another lady, Mrs. Farabee, purchased land on Hartford Street around the same time. So people pre-Civil War were able to buy land in Mm -hmm. Worthington. And then also the Morris Edition, which was an area that goes from South Street out to the Harding property on Andover and then Dublin-Granville Road to South Street was platted and annexed into Worthington in 1856. It was the first annex into Worthington. Okay. And that area, the lore is that it was, the idea was this Methodist minister, Uriah Heath, wanted the that land to be available to retired Methodist ministers and free blacks to be able to purchase land and build their own homes. So we've done some research into that, and there definitely were free black families that lived in Worthington that purchased land and built houses there pre-Civil War Mm -hmm. and continued to live in the area after Mm -hmm. the Civil War as well. So that's where the um, St. John's African Methodist Episcopal Church is located on Plymouth Avenue. And we're excited at the Historical Society because there will be a historic marker placed for that neighborhood and the church, hopefully, this August. Oh, that's great. Or September. As soon as we hear, we'll share the date. (laughs) And everybody likes to say that Worthington was on the Underground Railroad. What does that mean? What do we know about that? Yeah, so they're in documentation and letters. We know that Ansel Mattoon had a house where the gas station is on High Street at North 
Street. Oh, gotcha. Uh, and the house has been moved, so now it's behind the Dairy Queen. Mm. But it was where the gas station is. And that he was a wagon maker, uh, and so he would have reason to be transporting uh, wagons and mm-hmm. products. I think he also sold vegetables. So um, he is documented as being someone who helped move people towards freedom. And then also the Ozum Gardener house is on Flint Road. And that was considered, you know, as part of that original Sato Company purchase and was considered Worthington. Mm-hmm. And so, he, and Ozum Gardener also, through letters, we have a lot of first-person accounts of people being transported through as they were seeking freedom through oh, his property, too. Did people go through Worthington mostly when they were fleeing the South, or did they end up uh, did any of them end up staying here because of the friendly character? Yeah. So I don't know that we have documented that people, like specific people who um, were able to come uh, be, you know, assisted by Ansel Mattoon or Ozum Gardner or that anyone stopped here. Mm-hmm. But this would just be part of the route. You know, I do know that Ozum Gardner, if you read some of the letters, there were like signals that if people needed to stay at his house overnight, that there were, you know, different kind of knocking signals on the door. So he would know people were there. And there was like a little dugout that was at the back of the property near the stream that still you can kind of see if you're in Flint Cemetery that maybe they used to conceal people overnight or during the day. But so certainly people were coming through Worthington also Clinton Chapel, just south, and then the Hamby House in Westerville, other the Sharp House in Westerville. There were a lot of sites where mm-hmm. people were going and being brought and getting to stay for a night before they continued north. So with that basic history down, Kate and I decided to head out and take a look at where it all started out to the Village Green. It was a pretty busy midsummer's day, but we braved the traffic noise, and Kate told me a little bit more about what you're looking at when you stand on the green, and what you would have been looking at when those first settlers came west with the Scioto Company. Okay, I'm standing here now on the original Village Green of Worthington with Kate Lalonde again. Kate is lucky enough to be able to show off Worthington's history to some the younger members of our community too, aren't you? Yeah, so each May we see all the third graders in the Worthington School District and the two um, Worthington parochial schools that are here as well. So we see about 1,100 students. Wow. And their field trip, they visit the Orange Johnson House. They do grave rubbing in St. John's Episcopal Church's cemetery. They do a quick visit into St. John's Episcopal Church. And then we also do a short walking tour down High Street from the Village Green to New England and look at how buildings have changed over time. I am so excited to get to stand here and talk to you and hear this because I know my kids went on this tour and I didn't get to go, so I'm looking forward to hearing some of the things they got to hear. Sure. So what kind of things, uh, What first of all, I might maybe talk a little bit about where we are and what we're looking at. We're standing on what was the original Village Green, is that right, here in Worthington? Right, so this, the Village Green is five acres. It's bisected by um, High Street and Dublin Granville Road, which were planned um, by the Scioto Company members before they ever even got to Ohio. Uh, they had already drawn a map of their community and knew this was going to be in the center. So when we come with kids 
and they get off the bus here, one of the questions I always ask them is, you know, first of all, how many of them have ever been here, which a fair amount of students in Worthington have never actually been on the Village Green that they remember. Hmm. Uh, and then we try to imagine, like, what would this have looked like when the pioneers arrived in Worthington? That's a really good question. I guess it wasn't this manicured and gorgeous. Right. And so they would have gotten here. It would have been a forest. Just, you know, we think about, like, how if you've been to High Banks or Sharon Woods or any type of park that's just forest as far as you can see, that's, you know, what they got here. And they had to look at their land and, you know, Kilbourne was surveying it and decide this is where we're going to put our village green mm -hmm. and start cutting down trees. So what was the village green for? Just as a real quick aside. I mean, it's the center of the community. Um, they certainly would have events like market days. People would bring their um, goods. For I know in New England, they were used sometimes to actually graze livestock and stuff like that. Was it for that too? Well, yeah, you could graze your livestock on the green and then eventually they put up fences. Um, some, I think, to help make, um, corral livestock, and then eventually they passed ordinances that you could no longer let your <laughs> livestock um, roam on the village green at their leisure anymore. So, um, you know, it's changed, um, but the fact that it's a public space that doesn't have any buildings on it and is accessible to everyone in the community has stayed the same. So I like to, you know, we mentioned with the third graders, like when you look around, even though it's manicured now, the fact that these two streets come through the middle and the buildings are all around the edge, including this church, right where they planned the lots they set aside when they were drawing the map in Massachusetts, you know, are the, is where the church is today. Uh, if you could time travel, the pioneers would probably know that they're in Worthington. Oh, wow. Like that, that, that spirit has stayed the same. But it was a lot of work, I would imagine, making it look like this. Sure. You know, and they, the first, there's a letter that describes a girl recalling when she was a kid. She lived on the side of the village green, and there was a pump, a water pump in the middle of the green that was accessible to everybody. So she was sent to um, collect water from the pump. When they got here, all they cleared the trees. They just cut them all down, but they didn't have time to pick them up and cut them out they were you know building their homes and yeah. working on crops so they just left all the trees felled all over the green and that she remembers being lost for hours trying to find <laughs> her way off of the green to her house which was on the side and you know when we look around today it's really hard to wrap your head around being lost in this space yeah um, and not being able to find the edges but with no buildings tall buildings as landmarks and trees just in piles everywhere yeah um, yeah it's certainly and at certain points, it was completely clear of trees, and then um, different community members had have had different initiatives to put trees um, back on the green. And then now, as I understand, it's a it's actually a designated arboretum for a while. And just we're facing north. We're facing right at the corner of 161 and High Street, and looking at there's a building that's got cohatch plastered on the side of it right now. That's, uh, you mentioned that building earlier, right? Yeah, so that was built in the 1920s. Um, they tore a school down there and built this as a, J the James Kilbourne Memorial Library. Mm -hmm. It was built by his granddaughter, uh, Mrs. Deschler. And then she also funded two additions as they grew. And then eventually the library outgrew this building 
and moved to its current location. Just as Touche North, right? Yeah, right, bit, yeah, right. exactly. And uh, you can kind of peek around to the right and you see Kilbourne, what's now Kilbourne Middle School. Right, and that building was used as a elementary school and a middle school now. Um, and it was the site of a different church that was, or excuse me, different school that was um, the high school at one point. So it's had a lot of different school buildings on that site over time. And the the original two-room log cabin meeting slash schoolhouse, you're saying we're staring at the site where it pretty much was too, it, right? Yeah, it would have been where Cohatch is now, where yeah. the Kilbourne Library. So again, the library, the schooling, that was super important to them right from the beginning. Sure, yep. So they had saved these prime spots on the Village Green for those two institutions. And immediately to the right, we've got the Episcopal Church. Yep. So this church, um, the Methodists and Presbyterians actually got their church buildings built before the Episcopalians because they were using the community meeting room. Um, so it was actually the last of the three denominations to get a physical building. So it was built between 1827 and 1831. Oh, okay. But when you go inside the sanctuary, um, you can still see the four pillars, which were... Um, made from walnut trees that have been plastered that hold the roof up and um, they've done a nice job of maintaining uh, the look of that early church. And is that is that the bit that's further to the north there? Yes, yeah the original church is the northernmost section um, and then the parish house and the atrium are all additions. Gotcha. And if we swivel around and we start peering south, um, we could walk just a little bit and talk about the what the students get to see. Sure. So um, I do have them look directly across the street from ah. the Episcopal Church, the blue house at the corner. Looking down the, towards the river direction. Yeah, you mean? yeah. On the southwest village green. That's called the Demas Adams House, and it's the oldest frame structure in Worthington, or wooden house. It's 18, dates to about 1818, mm -hmm. and it's still standing. It's been a um, private residence since it was built in 1818, although um, it was used as a boarding house uh, early on in a, an inn. Um, so that's kind of nice when you think about the Orange Johnson House and the Demas Adams House were built at a similar time, the fronts. Okay. It gives you a sense of what um, the homes were being built to look like in the early 18 teens, or in the 18 teens in Worthington. And so around the green, would there have been more houses like it, kind oh. of lining around the green, or? Um, sure. There, well, like some of these houses, there's been a lot of infill, so the lots were a lot bigger. They were three quarters of an acre, and oh. then as... So there were 160 total lots in Worthington, and they okay. weren't even all built on in... Okay. So there were 160 in uh, town lots, and not even all of those had buildings on them. In fact, if you look at 18, the 1856 map, almost all the houses were concentrated on the high street. But each of those three-quarter acre lots would have only had one house. So then in the 1920s, when Worthington started really growing, those lots started getting subdivided, and okay. you get all this infill. So that's why you'll see, like, an old house, and then two 1920s, or a 1920s house, and then a 1940s or 50s house. It kind of, there's kind of patterns 
I gotcha. That as yeah. they as they infilled more and more of and subdivided down those lots. Mm-hmm. Um, so that where exactly their neighbors would have been, I'm not sure, but certainly not this density that we see here. Gotcha. So south of the green, we start to see some commercial buildings. When did the the commercial district arise? So the corner where the coffee shop is um, originally was where James Kilborn's house was, and it was built in 1804, wow. you know, really early on. And it attached to that cream building with the green awnings um, that is the commercial Kilborn commercial building, and it was built in 1808. This cream brick building that currently holds HER Realtors. Yeah, or now Howard Hama Realtors. Oh, oh, that's right. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. Uh, let me start that again. This cream building that currently holds Howard Hanna Realtors with the green awning. Right, and so it was built in 1808. It has three front doors because Kilborn had three different businesses. He had his surveying business. Oh, so those were his too. He built those too. Yes, yeah. So it attached his commercial building attached to his okay. residence. Gotcha. And he had, so he had a surveying office. They, in one of the um, doors, there was the Western Intelligencer. He ha- there was a printing press there, and they printed the first newspaper in Franklin County out of oh, that wow. building. And then the beat the dispatch, huh? That's right. And then the last door was to a dry goods store, so where people could purchase things that they couldn't make themselves at their home. Gotcha. Some maybe some fancy fabrics. Yeah, fabrics, some um, sugar, salt, things, right. ingredients that um, gotcha. they couldn't necessarily grow on their farm. So that was the first shop. Right, and it's actually the oldest commercial building that has been in continuous use as a business uh, in Franklin County as well. Oh, it is? Yeah, so because Worthington predates Columbus by a good decade. So if you're looking from the south from the Kilbourne Commercial Building, there are three more businesses that are in brick structures that all date to before 1850. In fact, there's a photograph of this stretch of road from around 1850 when photography was just coming onto the scene. And you can, you know, count the windows and look at the configurations and match all the buildings up. So it's kind of fun. Oh, that is fun. Where can you see pictures like that of old Worthington? So a lot of the historical society collections are actually available on the Worthington Library's website, which is worthingtonmemory.org. Fun. Yeah, and it's really a fun place to just go. There's a scrapbook, just has all these pictures. You can keyword search. So if you see something you want to know more about, it's an awesome resource. So keeping on with our tour here down High Street, one of the buildings that everybody likes to look at and remark on is the Worthington Inn. You can see just a scooch farther south. Right. And yeah, the Worthington Inn is at the corner of New England and High Street. Um, and it's gone by quite a few different names. It has kind of a fun history. It was actually um, built in 1835. Only the northern portion and two stories started at the center door and was a family residence um, for the Coles family from 1835. And then it was a private residence until around the Civil War when someone purchased the house. Mm -hmm. And the person modified the structure and then went on to sell it Um, he added a second half a second doorway and three rooms upstairs so it would become a hotel and it was called the union hotel first 
So the innkeeper could live in the original family residence and then the guests would be able to use the new front door and rooms as the, their accommodations. And then um, it stayed about that size until the 1900. And there was a fire. At that time, it was known as the Hotel Central. And when the roof burned down, George Van Loon, who was the owner, took the opportunity to add the third floor oh, ballroom. Oh, until 1900. Yeah. And he, so Victorian architecture was then in style. So you can see how the architecture is really different than the buildings to the north. It changed from a more federal style architecture to this Victorian look when he added the third floor ballroom in 1900. Now we are standing in the slightly quieter cemetery behind St. John's. Yeah, so this was a public burying ground uh, that actually had its first burial in 1804 before the church was here. Oh. Um, Abner Penny was a Revolutionary War veteran and he died in the first year that they were here in Worthington. Mm -hmm. So he was the first person buried. So you can see his marker. Um, it's actually a, now like a government issue marker because his original marker is no longer here. Um, but then a lot of other names that are really recognizable from early Worthington history are uh, able to be found here. So like Ruth and Ezra Griswold um, and the Griswold children are in a line right off the um, patio from the church. Um, James Kilborn has a large flat tablet that's elevated on a brick vault kind of thing with an inscription on the um, top of the tablet and then there's other Kilborn children and his first wife Lucy um, who survived childbirth coming here but then died in childbirth with another child later. Um, it's unclear if James Kilborn's remains are still here because his second wife, Cynthia um, Goodale Barnes Kilborn, was buried in Greenlawn, and there, there's some debate that maybe she had him moved to be buried ah. with her. Um, but the white, there's a white obelisk to the left of the Kilborn vault that says Coles. That's who built the original section of the Worthington Inn. Uh, and as you go through, even if you don't know the stories of the people, a lot of the names are um, names that are used for elementary schools or streets in Worthington. Um, so you can see kind of how our history is being still honored in what we have named things. Oh, gotcha. Yes, Penny, I see. And, mm -hmm. right. What are some of the ones you like here? Well, so there's one over in the corner, um, kind of near the preschool, that's William Robe. And he was a teacher at the Worthington Academy, and it's very ornate and has a lot of 3D. It's not good for rubbing, but it's very, <laughs> has an urn on the top. Mm. It's just really um, different than all the others. But then there are also fun things like... In the Griswold line, I think the daughter, Emily, um, you can see, and we asked the third graders if they can see anything wrong with her gravestone, and whoever was engraving it missed a letter, and then had to put the letter underneath with like a little carrot, because oh. <laughs> they spelled it wrong. So A copy you know, edited stone. <laughs> yeah, there's no spell check when you're um, engraving a stone, so um, those kind of things are a little bit fun to find. Okay, Especially gotcha. early on. And then there were a lot of burials here 
that are no longer in existence um, or that like visible. So there are a lot of stones behind the columbarium wall on the south side laying down. And then people like the Johnson's first two children, Mary, who died when she was three, and then um, William were buried in the cemetery, but there aren't any stones left. Oh. And the back half of the church, the, this back section is actually an addition. Mm-hmm. So um, there were graves under where they put the addition on as well, oh. including Philander, Reverend Philander Chase, who was the bishop of the Episcopal Church in Ohio, who was uh, here, served here from 1817 to 1821. His wife um, was buried where that church was expanded. So the church has some lore that Mary Chase haunts the building because her grave is under. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's she, under. She, they didn't move it. They, from as far as I'm aware, they did not move it. Oh, and so that's a poltergeisty kind of situation. They have um, strange goings on. Sometimes they're attributed to Mary Chase. Oh, that's fun! <laughs> you guys do it. So that's a brief history of how what we know and love as Worthington got its start. The Worthington Historical Society has so very much more to explore if you want more. There's the old rectory at 50 West New England that houses the society and the doll museum, which could be a show in itself. There's also a shop there with some great collectibles and antiques and some locally written books about Worthington. You can also get booklets with directions for their very well done walking tours there. The society also puts on events like the ever popular ghost tour near Halloween. They collaborate on other events like antique sales on market day and historic information exhibits. Seriously, they're just all around awesome. You should check out worthingtonhistory.org. I want to thank Kate Lalonde endlessly for her help on this and other upcoming episodes. More thanks are owed to Eric Nesda for his extremely generous permission to use his tune North of 50 as the soundtrack to this podcast. You should check out his work at Gnezda, that's G-N-E-Z-D-A, Gnezda.com. And of course, you should keep an ear out for him on an upcoming episode about the musicians of Worthington. And finally, thanks very much to the City of Worthington and the Community Relations Commission for their general seed grant to help me get this podcast off the ground. I hope you enjoyed it. It's a long one, but this stuff is just so great, and I have more supplemental material at worthingtonstories.com. Okay, I promise I'm wrapping it up. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, send me feedback through the website, and stay tuned for more episodes of Worthington Stories.